Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Hope you enjoyed the lunch. It was certainly a good one again today. Thanks to Country Kitchen Catering. Before we get on with the uh, ombudsman, we will, I will tell you that what's on next week. Uh, we have a very distinguished speaker next week, uh, Dr. Lois Wilson. She was the very first uh, moderator of the United Church of uh, Canada way back in 80. Tad knows her very well. First woman, yeah. First woman moderator. And uh, she was a, sat as an independent senator for some time in the Canadian Senate back in the days when it was a little bit more honorable than it is today to be a senator. Uh, we also have, so that's next Thursday, and the following Thursday we have uh, Mayor Chris Spearman coming to tell us where Lethbridge is going in the next four years. And down the road, we have Joe Anglin coming to speak about the Altalink sale to uh, American Corporation. And on that note, uh, he sent me an email today if I could announce that uh, Alberta Utilities Commission is meeting in Calgary tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., to decide on whether they're going to have public hearings on that sale or not. So if anybody has a really strong feelings about that, you could go to, the, uh, to Calgary. And I have the information here so I can let you know where to go. Anyway, let's uh, welcome back Peter so that he can take your tough questions. I can't dance during the quiet times, so I'm <clears throat> Hello, Peter. Uh, my name is Graham Greenlee. If you uh, march into some, some government office and, and demand to see uh, copies of documents A, B, and C, and they say no, what do you do then? Well, yeah, we haven't had that happen, quite frankly. What, um, uh, so on, a, on the plus side... I would probably pause for a second and wonder what's going on um, in reality because it hasn't happened. Um, we have actually quite an amicable relationship. Um, if it did, I would make the demand and, and um, they would you know, presumably kick me out and I would go without fighting um, and then make application to get that. And um, it'd probably be a pretty fast track right to the minister's office. And I would suspect I would have those documents in pretty short order. Fortunately, we don't have to resort to those kinds of tactics, but, uh, but they are there, and, they, and every once in a while we need to remind people of that when they want to, because what happens uh, in real terms, what can happen sometimes is, as you can appreciate, our, our society right now is, you know, can be very litigious, 
And so sometimes they want to run everything through the lawyers. And as much as I don't really mind that, I go, yeah, go ahead and run everything through the lawyers. But if the lawyers vet everything, I'm just going to go down and get the unvetted materials anyway. So you might as well give me the unvetted materials right from the get-go. Save us all a bunch of time. And they do. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Uh, I'm a retired international civil servant. But uh, we had an ombudsman at the UN. But it would seem the role was a little bit different to your own. Um, at the UN, the ombudsman had a full-time job, their regular jobs, and they did it in a voluntary capacity, listening to complaints from the staff. But our directors, and I was one of them, that corresponded to ministers, weren't immune from uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and neither was the uh, head of the agency which would correspond to your premier. Um, how many staff do you have? <coughs> On the and uh, let me, if I may, continue with, uh, with sure. another question and observation. Uh, you say you report to the legislature and you have no boss, but how do you report to the legislature? Do you make an oral presentation? Is it available to the public? I've never seen you on CPAC. Okay. Um, and, and then perhaps you could give us some examples on what your office has done during your tenure to bring about change. I'm not talking about uh, civil servants being rude to either the public or their colleagues. I'm thinking about things like civil servants booking the prime minister, booking the government plane, the civil servants, not the minister, because apparently you're immune, or the minister's immune from your oversight. But the civil servants that actually do the work, I mean, are you looking into that now? I mean, it's things of that nature that we'd like to see whether, in fact, your office is doing something in terms of bringing about change. Okay. But please start on how many staff you've got. Sure. At the Ombudsman office there are, I have a complement of, uh, could have a complement of 25. I have 24 currently. Um, two are, well, I have 22 currently. Two are just being staffed as we speak. Um, and uh, seven of those are in Calgary, and the other 17 are in Edmonton. And there's no, uh, there's no reference to why there's 17 in one and seven in the other, other than Edmonton, of course, is the head of government, and so we have our more corporate people there as well, myself and those positions. But if you pick up the phone and call, you're going to get somebody from Edmonton or Calgary, and there's really no relevance other than that to an average complainant. Um, to answer... You know, you're testing my memory here. To answer your second question about, uh, I forget what it was. Oh, yes, how do I report to the legislature? Sorry. Um, I report to the legislature, well, I do it a couple of ways. I do it through the, um, generally speaking, under normal sort of business um, uh, pr procedure, I report through the uh, Standing Committee on for Legislative Offices. All of the independent officers do. So there's an 11-member uh, all-party committee called the Standing Committee on, for Legislative Offices. We will report there in terms of providing a review and an overview of our annual report, the activities that we've covered off in the past year. Um, we will also make an um, application for budget to that party. Both those meetings are held there at the same meeting, and they're held in generally mid to late November because the budget's coming up in, in late March. And we also provide an annual report of our activities, um, and that's a requirement under the Act, and that annual report goes to 
um, gets tabled in the Legislative Assembly first, and, of course, copies go to all the MLAs and, and it gets tabled up through the Lieutenant Governor in that regard. So that's the formalized reporting. If we do a report that goes public, it, it, they all get tabled at the Legislative Assembly. So I just send it through the Legislative Assembly office and gets tabled up in and, and an opportunity for all MLAs to, to debate the issue in the House. In terms of what we've done, um, you know, I don't... I. I'm not, I can't stand here and say in my three years that we've done anything that has been earth-shattering and, and, and uh, polarizing in, in Alberta in terms of big shifts in government. And um, what I can tell you is that it is a bit like, um, like steering a boat, if you will, like I said before. It's the minor corrections, the small changes in policy and procedure that actually affect the biggest change in government for us. Now, why is that, that we're not having any um, earth-shattering types of things? Um, I, think it's, I think it speaks well to the nature of where we're at in 2014 in, you know, in, well, in, in most of the world, um, certainly in North America, in terms that there's not, you know, there's been a lot of the policies and procedures are in place that that change has been affected and it, it, it gets tweaked from time to time. We do, it does generate some benefits for people, um, you know, and it's a large benefit for someone when they go from 500 to $1,000 a month. Um, those kinds of benefits that, that come. Do I make that decision? No. I send it back and the entity, AISH or WCB or that type of entity, they make the decision. But I've, we make the recommendation and we've, we've surfaced some of those certainly over the, in the past number of years. In terms of um, sort of maybe your more pertinent question about in light of the current environment, um, what sorts of things are we looking into? A lot of those things um, get handled by, at, by the Auditor General. So, some of these things, depending on what happens, we will look to see which is the correct office to do this. And some of these things, that, those kinds of things, they're not so much a fairness a, um, activity at this point. They're more about an audit activity. And those, that's where it's been handled at that level. Um, to give you a con uh, um, the opposite perspective, under the, under the Public Whistleblower uh, Whistleblowers Act, um, one went to the Auditor General, the um, purchase, of, uh, purchase and deployment of $10 million worth of computers by Alberta Health Services. It went to the Auditor General. But he looked at it, we had a conversation, and he moved that word over to me because that was more about whistleblowing and the review from that perspective than it was from the auditor's perspective. So in terms of the plain use and that sort of thing, that sits in the, in the, um, in the desk or the drawer or whatever of the Auditor General right now. Do we watch for those kinds of things? Absolutely. Do we... Do we keep our eye or our, our, you know, ear to the ground on what's happening in government and make comment in those areas when we can? Yes, once we know the facts. If it's a personal complaint, we don't go public. As before I said, it remains completely confidential. And um, there is a, a balance to be met there, and we're trying to achieve that with the notion that we'll go public when we can, but we won't when we shouldn't. My name is Douglas Mitchell. Peter, thank you for... Uh clarifying some aspects of your job. Uh, I'm curious to know whether you're serving uh, the public and you're serving the government who employ you. And I'm curious about the, it's a quasi-judicial position, as I would understand it. And I wonder, and you did touch on this about the litigiousness of the of the uh, the possibility of getting into trouble in relation to uh, the judicial system, and I'm wondering about if you have any problem or had any conflict between the government justice department and the uh, public uh, judicial system. 
Um, no, we have, we've not had any um, issues in the judiciary in any sense. Um, we, we don't get involved when a court's involved in the decision-making process. And so if something goes to court, and uh, probably to clarify for, for an individual, if they come to us, we say, look, before you can actually come to us at the Ombudsman Office, you have to exhaust all levels of, of approach and appeal that you have available to you at the departmental or, or public entity level. That does not include the court process. So just because you pretty well always have a time to appeal, to take something to court. That doesn't mean you have to in order to come to us. You can just, you exhaust the other areas. Um, what we will do if we get a complaint and there's still time for you to take it to court, um, then we'll say, okay, just wait till that time expires and then we'll look into it. But we will look into it afterwards. And one of the, one of the, one of the comments that I can make about the, about the lawyers, just I, every once in a while I have a challenging conversation with them. They will come back to me and uh, let's see if I can give an example that's concrete. Um, Okay, under the uh, uh, Health Protection Act, um, it says that, uh, I think it's Section 65, don't quote me, um, says that the complaints director must provide all complaints, a cop uh, must move the complaint up to the, up to the review level. And some have interpreted that must to mean if I choose. And we say, no, it doesn't mean you choose, it means you must. And sometimes they will go to their lawyers and they will say, not justice lawyer necessarily, but a hired lawyer that acts on their behalf, and they'll say, you know, the ombuds, or, you know, somebody's saying this, do we have to? And they'll come back and they'll say, no, you don't have to. It's, there's no legal requirement for you to do this. You know, it might be in that area. And they'll come to me and I'll, I'll get that. But I'll go back to them and I'll have a conversation with them and with the lawyers and say, look, I know that you asked the question, do I have to? And I know that they said, they came back to you and said, you don't have to. But I'm saying it, does, it doesn't say you have to, but it doesn't say you can't. And in terms of fairness, of fairness, I'm saying you need to. So I don't really care what the lawyer says, what's legal or what's not. What's fair isn't necessarily the strict rule of legal. So we will have those conversations. You know what? We generally win those conversations because, and I like to say it's because we bring logic and, and fairness into the issue and it's hard for them to come up with any other um, cogent argument. Um, but we do, so we will have challenges that way. But we, we treat it as it is, and that's, uh, we want to make sure that we're right, and we certainly like the challenge because it does ensure that we're right, or helps anyway. Thank you for your talk, Peter. Uh, my name is Mary Shillington. Uh, you've clarified some things for me, and some I have a number of questions, but I'm going to go with the first one now, and if there aren't other people here, I'll come back. Um, I'm wondering, since the Whistleblowing Act kind of came into uh, into place, what are you seeing is different? Because I think uh, we hear reports about people who have have done whistleblowing and then being ostracized by so many people, or even worse. And so, what are you seeing as the impact of this whistleblowing uh, on on our society and also on the the staff that the, the person who does the whistleblowing and the other people and the relationships there? Well, you know, those are, those are interesting and challenging questions all at the same time, and there are certainly things that are going through our mind at this time. Um, keep in mind, my perspective comes from a very um, uh, new perspective, having only been at this for a year, and of course the first six months you're just getting rolling and people don't even know it exists. I'm not comfortable that everybody knows it exists now. Um, and, but, you know, we've only been 14 months or whatever, 15 months. But it's, um, you know, there's undoubtedly... People who blow the whistle, and thank you, people who blow the whistle have to get through a lot of consternation in their own mind for a variety of reasons, to be comfortable with their peers, to be comfortable with maybe their immediate bosses or, and, and or whoever those bosses are that may be 
committing that wrongdoing if it's if it's not one of them, um, right on up to the to the chief executive officer or whatever in, in the most in the case of government the deputy minister and that sort of thing and and. Uh, Goodness knows if it involves them. If it does involve them, and of course the consternation would go up even higher. So there's a lot of turmoil going on in their mind. And so part of what we want to do is we want to try and see how we can comfort that in any way, shape, or form. Having said that, it's hard to do because when you hear the comments about whistleblowers and the examples out there, um, you don't hear many good, good news stories. Now, I think there are good news stories out there. And I'm going to, some of this, my answer is going to be more my optimism about what I want to achieve and what I my perspective than it is what the reality is maybe today in 2014. But so I'll give you an example. Um, oh, no. I'll, I'll, the definition of whistleblowing only contemplates somebody disclosing information about a wrongdoing. That's what, that's what the word disclosure or wrong or, you know, yeah, disclosure means in this. So the whistleblowing is the act of disclosing. Um, I, I would challenge that, that in most people's minds, the whistleblowing is actually the act of disclosing and then something negative happening to that person, at a minimum, the incident or the situation is not looked into appropriately. I think both those components are all necessary before most people will believe it's whistleblowing. Now to give you an example of, a, because and what I, the reason I say that is I'd like to come up with positive examples to throw out to audiences like this so I can say, look, here's a great example of whistleblowing when it works and see, I could, I could use that to show how it's good for the whistleblower because it worked well for them. It's good for the organization because it found a problem and corrected it. And it's good for, um, you know, it's good for everybody out there because it saved money and those kinds of things or efficiency. So go back a couple of years to the um, public trustee office. There was somebody within the public trustees department that came forward and said, there's somebody stealing money in here. Somebody at a fairly high up in the organization, they're stealing money in to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think it was $175,000, if memory serves me correct. Um, so a whistleblower made a disclosure to the organization. The organization started to look into it, looked into it, found that there was money missing, took that to the lawyers at justice. The lawyers laid a charge of theft or fraud or whatever it was that they charged. The person got charged, went to court, presumed convicted and all that, but maybe that hasn't even come up yet for this, uh, as long as it takes. And, um, and they ended up dismissing or releasing the public trustee. Because, of the, because they saw that as they, the public trustee took insufficient action to make sure the safeguards were in place. And the whistleblower was never challenged, chastised, uh, uh, reprised against, moved off to a different place, lunch hours changed, shift changed, anything like that. It was the, you know, their, their action was seen as a positive thing. So I'd like to throw that up there as a positive whistleblowing event. Look what happened. They found a theft. They corrected it. They got rid of people they thought they needed to get rid of, and they put things in place to help make sure it didn't happen again. What a great example of how whistleblowing can work. A couple things. I don't have enough examples like that, and the, and the hard part is, is, is telling people that that's a real positive event because most people will look, especially ones that are concerned about whistleblowing, they say, yeah, but that's the way it's supposed to be. So that's only got us to a level playing field. What about all of us out there that are chastised? And yes, that's the hard part. So that's why the bigger purpose of the act, uh, the Whistleblowers Act, is to change the culture. And that's really our goal. Now, I'm the first one to stand up and say that's generational in, 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 in essence. We have to change the whole attitude. I know there are pockets of, 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 of uh, the pieces of each organization probably out there where you know, this unit will work really well and they celebrate when somebody brings ba up bad news and nothing really gets out of hand. And then I, I, I can foresee there'd be one right beside them where they are involved in some nebulous or nefarious activities and they're doing things and they don't want people to report anything. 
we've got enough managers sometimes that they have a false sense that any bad news is bad news against them, so they want to put a lid on it. So they're, you know, they're very quickly trying to snuff out any potential flames. But no, we need to change that. We need to celebrate it where the, where the whistleblowers celebrate it. And of course, the protections I can offer can be limited in the sense that it's like assault. I can, you know, our law protects people against being assaulted, you know, once you've been hit. And we protect you. We can, you know, take action in terms of a reprisal once you've been apprised, reprised against. Well, that might not be very comforting for the average whistleblower to, to be able to come to that. Now, sometimes they're going to get to their wit's end and say, you know what, I have to stand up for what's right here and I have to do this. And that's where another level where we have to provide that protection and try and do what we can. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, why shouldn't I just go to the media? They can get real action real quick. Yes, they can. Um, and I would never dispute that the media is a very powerful tool. Um, I, I'm left with the act. It doesn't say that you can do that necessarily. Um, and if you do, you take your chances. If you come to our office, you have the protections that the act provides. And one of those protections is if you have confidential information, you can tell, tell myself or any of the investigators that work for, with, with Ted. Te I should mention that Ted, Ted Miles is here with me. He's the director of the uh, uh, whistleblower side of our operation, so he looks after all the investigations on that side. Um, but we can provide that. We can listen to that information. We can work with it. We can do the investigation, and they can't take action against you for revealing confidential information. And so that is one protection that, that nobody else can offer. The media can't offer that. No disrespect in, intended to the media. It's just they can't. Um, and, and the other thing is, is we do have that power to go in and look at things. So, and once now, we will take anonymous complaints. I should add to this. Um, my answers are never short. Um, um, when um, we will take anonymous complaints. Do we want anonymous complaints? Well, quite frankly, we'd like people to phone us and have, not be anonymous with us. And we'll try and keep it anonymous at any other level. And we, but we also recognize the notion that if it's anonymous, but you're the only person that could know, that once we start poking around, your identity might get, get compromised through nobody's fault but, but the nature of the situation. Did I help answer your question, Tom? Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. <clears throat> and I want to go, uh, uh, my question relates to your other hat, the ombudsman. And the principle of fairness, how do you deal with items which the way the government has set them up have an inherent unfairness in them? I will give an example. A systemic unfairness. For example, setting up a body, not a crown corporation, but a body set up by the government, like the AER, the Alberta Energy Regulator, whose decisions are not appealable. Where's the fairness in that? And how could you help with that? <clears throat> are we? Um, I'm not sure I can help with that, but just to, be, to, be, uh, to provide a, uh, a fair answer. Um, where we can help, of course, now, uh, Remember I said that I, I can't get involved, I have no jurisdiction in the executive arm. So if there are executive decisions made, part, you know, political decisions made, I, I'm not allowed in there. And the only people that are allowed in there are us as a, you know, I guess I am as an individual who votes. Um, but that's where the change gets made is at the next election. I know that's not, that's not providing you with anything to, to take home and post on the fridge, right? That's just the nature of the way it is in, in our democracy. So I can't do that. Administratively, if there are things that people go through within that system, 
and they're not and the and the process was not followed we can review that process and change the individual situation or if it's more than one you know and if it's more bit more systemic than that we can do that but i am relegated to the administrative arm thank you very much for your presentation my name is francis schultz you said uh, on the side of the whistleblower that you could provide protection for the whistleblower and I would really like you to elaborate on what you mean by provide protection because there's so many subtle things that can happen to someone in that situation. Ab absolutely, you're right. So yes, my protection is, um, I don't want to oversell it to start with the, the protection that I, if that, I mean, I can't, you know, it's like anything. Um, I, like I said, you know, we can protect people against assault, you know, once they've been assaulted. In large part, some of the protection I can provide to, to whistleblowers is about who've been reprised against is once they've been reprised to, against, I can go try and change that, reverse it, have the, have, you know, have, the, have the government department or public entity or whatever reverse it or not do those things or stop doing those things or go and have it prosecuted. There are fines for, for committing a reprisal. So I could do that. That's of little, uh, a little um, confidence to the whistleblower if they're sitting at home watching their TV wishing they were still back at work because they've been fired unceremoniously. Or, um, and then you talk about the subtle changes. Exactly. One, one of the challenges that we do have, and, and um, as you can well imagine, if there's, let's say somebody blows the whistle on, you know, today, and over the next five years, somebody systematically starts a reprisal that starts off very gentle, but five years from now, they make it look dangerously like a performance issue that that employee has, quite quite uncharacteristic to that employee. What we have to do is be able to draw the nexus between what was the event where the whistle was blown and what was the, ne you know, the nexus to the reprisal. And that can be extremely challenging. And that's why, so we don't want to provide any false sense of hope and security there as much as I want to be positive. I, you know, I think there are things we can do. I think what we, re you know, the real, to me that's a little bit the example of, you know, somebody's throwing bodies, throwing people off a bridge. Um, you know, we can go, we can go help the people that get thrown off the bridge and run them off to the hospital and get them patched up. But somebody needs to climb the stairs and stop the people from throwing the other people off the bridge. And that's where we've got to change the cultures. We've got to get up there and, and try and change the culture. And is it slow? Yes. Is there going to be collateral damage in the meantime? Probably. It's not going to stop today because they've announced some act. Um, we have to do what we can, and we have to find those things to celebrate the, the good news stories out there. I know they're out there. We just have to improve that. So... Yes, the, but then protections do still come back more in the confidential information and those kinds of things and after-the-fact protection. Last question. Uh, Terry Shillington. Thank you very much, uh, Peter, for your presentation. I want to uh, develop further the uh, question that Henning Mundell raised around, <clears throat> around uh, laws that are inherently unfair and uh, what, if anything, you can do. Uh, and I could think of, uh, I was at a polling booth in the last provincial election in which students, uh, many of the students at the U of L could not vote because they were required to vote at their place of residence, which might be Grand Prairie or someplace like that. It seemed a law that, that either through indifference or through intention limited student voting. Uh, are there any, and, and I think your answer will be that that's a, that's a, that's a political decision and, and you can't comment on that. My question is whether your parameters and restrictions are any different than other ombudsmen across Canada and whether there are any provincial jurisdictions where, where um, 
the Ombudsman has the right to question uh, the fairness of a law. Uh, I think that'd be interesting. Um, we can, you know, we can. Um, my my ability to make a recommendation can be pretty is pretty significantly broad. I can make a recommendation about anything. I can make a recommendation that's about what's wrong. Um, what the process is not right, those kinds of things. If I think there's an error in a, in a complaint, if there's an error of law, I can make comment on that, and they can, we can try and fix that and those kinds of things. So we can make those comments. Um, yes, we do stick to the process and the procedure and the administration of it. Um, we will get into the merits occasionally, not very often. And, and um, give you an example of a merit one is where somebody, you know, somebody doesn't get a benefit, but all the and they. they probably should have. All the rules were followed, but it just didn't make sense that they weren't getting anything. I've gone, I've gone a couple of times to deputy ministers, and, and they've been resolved at that level, saying, look, you followed all the rules here, but it's not right. You know, you've got to do something for this individual. You know, you make sure, you know, you can fit them in here somewhere, and they've done that. Um, so I can do individually, we can make those kinds of comments. Are we different than anybody else in the country? No. Um, the legal scholars and, and um, the group of us uh, parliamentary ombudsmen, and there's 10 of us in Canada, ombudsmen at the parliamentary level, um, similar. Our acts are all quite similar. Um, we all, we all, with the exception of of um, Ontario, work in a um, in a fashion of patience and collaboration. Um, Ontario, there, it's a little more, it's a little, a little more confrontational um, than maybe the rest. No, no disrespect meant to Ontario in any way, shape, or form. It's just a different approach in Ontario that works for Ontario. Um, but for all intents and purposes, if you peel back the onion levels and look at what, what, what we do, what Ontario does, what Quebec does, Newfoundland, all across Canada, we're all pretty much in the same category of approach. But I can comment if I think laws are incorrect and wrong, and I, I can make those comments. Now, I should, can I elaborate just one second? I, I will leave it, like, in, in the terms of the election one that you used. Now, that's another one where I said we'll try and make sure that it goes to the right authority. That one, if it would come to me, I would probably make a call right away to the chief electoral officer and say, where in here should you be making the comment or me? Thank you very much. Please join me in appreciation of uh, the ombudsman coming.